You are listening to From Sobriety to Recovery with Jesse Mogul, episode 10. Let's get to the show. Welcome back to From Sobriety to Recovery. I am your host, Jesse Mogul. I am in addiction recovery. And today we are going to talk about emotions. And there's a lot about this. There's a lot. lot. And more than likely, if you are in the beginning stages of sobriety, then you are going through a lot of different kinds of emotions. There could be fear. There could be anger, anxiety. There's going to be a lot going through you because your brain is seeking to find balance again. You were burning through your endorphins and your dopamine and your serotonin by consistently getting yourself intoxicated on some alcohol or some drugs, and now you take that away and the brain is just, it's flipping out. It had been relying on these external vices to begin to produce these uh, feelings of elation and excitement and rejuvenation inside of you when we know full well, especially the next day, how painful uh, the body actually felt, how drained the brain actually felt. So it didn't really want to continue to rely upon alcohol and drugs for it to um, feel this homeostasis, this balance, but it was, and it was trained to do that. So when you take away the alcohol and the drugs, your brain is going to be going through a ton of stuff. And generally, you'll be looking at somewhere between that. Some people will say two weeks. I've done some research on this. Yes, the brain will begin to get back to a homeostasis rather quickly. The two-week mark is generally whenever it can start to really put in some effort into the production of those feel-good hormones, the endorphins, the dopamine, the serotonin. But we're really looking for like a six to 12 week here. And because this is episode 10, you might have been going through this for a while now um, and noticing that you have been getting somewhat more balanced and you've been able to quote unquote fend off some of these negative emotions. And that's one of the things I want to talk to you about as we continue to grow you towards this version of yourself that you've been desiring, right? As someone who can handle um, disappointments and can understand why confrontations happening and being able to control your emotions. Because as you get more balanced, um, your interactions with people are going to change. The version of you that was coming around them secretly intoxicated or blatantly intoxicated is now being replaced with this person who's seeking an internal hormonal balance within their mind, their body, their spirit, their emotions, the whole deal. I mean, you were literally remodeling your entire life around this idea and this energy of, I will live my life sober. I am now going to become a person in long-term recovery. And deciding right now, that moving forward, you are no longer going to be a person who drinks and uses drugs in order to cope or manage or to elicit some level of euphoria in life, even to be a social drinker. Like it's, it's done. If you're somebody like me, I rung the bell. Alcoholism is just, it's in me now, right? I, you know, I've talked about this already. I won't go around saying that I am an alcoholic, but I am somebody who has alcoholism right? It is something that's in me. I know that one is too many and a thousand never enough. The bell's been rung. The toothpaste is out of the tube. I cannot put it back in. So I made that decision to move forward being a person who no longer drinks or uses drugs. So now I want you to begin to decide that moving forward, you are no longer a person who yells and fights and starts arguments as a normal way of reacting. I want you to decide that right now because it's in that decision that you make 
that you can begin to actually taking action on being that person. Impulse control and the ability to just calm yourself down, not being emotionally triggered, um, not being um, someone who just immediately snaps into this anger mode. It's going to take time, especially if that was part of your go-to moves in the past in the way that you communicated. You know, you don't get your way. Something somebody says something that you deem as disrespectful, and immediately you want to snap and you want to start an argument. Somebody has an opinion that you do not feel is the same as yours. Next thing you know, you feel like you have to defend yours, and now you're yelling and shouting, and that's addiction. Addiction is going straight to yelling and shouting and anger. All right, sobriety would be more like biting your tongue and, and holding your voice in and not even trying to defend yourself. And mind you, I talk about um, strong opinions loosely held. You can have your opinions. You don't have to change your opinions, but you don't have to live and die by every single opinion and belief that you have. Not every single thing that you have an opinion around or you believe is exactly the way somebody else will. Right? They have their own model of the world. They have their own point of view. They have their own map that they have that has created the life that they are experiencing right now. Their environment, their experiences, their memories, their moods, their attitudes, their personality profile, the way they've experienced life is not going to be the same as you. Even if they were glued to your hip your entire lives, they are not going to have experienced the world the same as you. So let's talk about some ways that we can really begin to um, allow ourselves to not get disappointed to be less confrontational and to control our emotions, right? And this can also be, you know, deemed managing your emotions, but we'll get to that later on in the show. So it's really important that you understand that as you begin to get into this homeostasis and balance yourself out, that you're going to have some levels of self-doubt. It might be around the fact that you don't think that you can maintain your sobriety because you've tried in the past. It could be self-doubt around whether you're a good parent or a good sibling or a good um, child. It could be so many different things because of your history using drugs and alcohol. You have doubted yourself in the past. More than likely, you had some doubts when you started to get intoxicated, and those only begin to fester and grow inside of you. So understand that self-doubt is just you not having demonstrated to yourself enough that you've been able to convince yourself that this is what's working for you, that this is where things are leading. And here's the key. It's going to take time to demonstrate to yourself in certain areas of your life that you are healing, that you are quote unquote getting better, that you are leading yourself more desirably. But but quitting the quitting isn't going to make it happen any faster. In fact, quitting the quitting will be exactly what gets you back to where you already have been. And you've already told me you were sick and tired of feeling sick and tired or you wouldn't be listening to this show. So just know that even if you think that it's not necessarily working, that this is why in the meetings that they say it works if you work it. It's like going to the gym and doing a bicep curl one time and expecting that your muscles will pop and be huge. It's day in, day out, focusing on your nutrition and on your physical fitness. And then you look around a year later and you're like, holy crap, how did this change? It's because each and every day you were doing something that was moving you toward it. And we're going to talk a lot more about that as this show grows. So one of the things that you might be feeling when it comes off to fending off disappointment is that disappointment 
generally will be felt inside of you when you had expectation thoughts of how you think things should be going or should have gone. Expectations lead to disappointment, right? Because rarely will something live up to the picture you have created in your mind. You get sober, you think life's going to be hunky-dory, and then you realize what we've all realized, and you had realized it in the past too, that life's 50-50. Some days are good and some days are bad. That you're not going to be riding on cloud nine and the pink cloud and all this stuff every single day. Some days you're stuck on a phone talking to your healthcare provider for three hours because they messed up your health insurance. And you know what? That ain't a great time. Some days are just better than others. And I'd like to be able to feed you some bullshit about how you can make every single day like you're at an amusement park or that you know, you're know you bungee jumping over an awesome cliff or you're in Hawaii on vacation. And that's just not going to be reality. Now, here's the key. A whole day of amazing, even in a whole day of amazing, there's going to be, let's go back to the amusement park. There's going to be some times you're standing in a line for two hours before you get to that amazing. Not even every single moment at an amusement park or going on vacation to Hawaii, that plane flight, depending on where you live, cannot be fun. So not every part of the day is going to be amazing, but you can pull out a little piece of amazing every single day. By looking for the little things in life that can bring you joy. It could be uh, present in a conversation you used to be intoxicated in. It could be going somewhere you used to get drunk and being able to enjoy it sober. It could be um, cleaning up your house and being sober rather than used to being intoxicated health. For some of us, it was just cleaning the house, period. Maybe that wasn't a habit that you had instilled in yourself when you were actively using, and now you want a clean house because you're a different person. So these expectations that you have about what sobriety is going to be to you, that's going to more than likely be a disappointment, especially if you're noticing people around you who are straight crushing it, and then maybe not every day is straight crushing it for you. But I can assure you, even those people going into the meetings and saying life is amazing and this is the best decision I've ever made and it's like I'm winning the lottery every day, they're having troubles. They're just not bringing that up in the meetings. And that could be for their own reasons, ego and, and pride. Don't worry about what's going on in their life. Let's think about what's going on in your life. So when you have expectations, they will lead to disappointment because you've created this image in your head of the way things are supposed to go. And when they don't go that way, you're disappointed. But what if even being able to go to the amusement park should just be an excitement for you? Even that is amazing. Instead of expecting to ride 10 rides, okay, you rode four. It was still a great time. Instead of thinking that I had to ride 10 to have a good time, just the fact that you were able to go and enjoy it, even if it was just for four rides, is amazing. Celebrate the little victories. So what are some things that will lead you towards disappointment? And then when you feel this disappointment, what are some of the emotions that that will lead you to? Well, we've already discussed having expectation thoughts about any event that could happen in your life could potentially lead to disappointment if it doesn't appear in front of you in reality, the way that you had conjured it up in your head. So we know that expectations lead to a disappointment. This does not mean that you shouldn't expect to go off and, and have fun at a park if you're going there with the family on a picnic, but it's just what level of fun are you expecting it to be? Let it be whatever the moment is. And when we start to think about what emotions can come um, and how they might show up, let's look at anxiety. Anxiety comes from future pacing, and future pacing is a word we use in neuro-linguistic programming, of which I'm a master practitioner and trainer of, 
And it's just the idea that you start to think really far off into the future. Well, how is this thing going to turn out? What about this thing, that thing? You start to pace yourself into your future. Where anxiety starts to show up is sometimes we're pacing ourselves three days into the future when there's nothing we can do about that event coming up in three days. We are as prepared for it as we can be, or it's just something we don't even need to prepare for. We just know we're going to go do that thing, and it is whatever it is. Right? You can also start future pacing yourself months down the line. You know, I've seen this happen with college students where they start to stress out about classes that are a year away. It's like, let's pump the brakes. Let's focus on what we can do now. When you have anxiety, it's because you're thinking about the future. I mean, feel into that for a moment. You don't have anxiety about things that have already happened unless you, let's say, went to court. And so you had anxiety about going to court. You go to court, but now you have anxiety about what the judge is going to rule or about the next step. Okay, then you have anxiety about the next step, but you no longer have anxiety about something that's already happened. You have the anxiety for fear of a repercussion for something you've already done. What you're feeling about the past is either guilt or shame or remorse or regret, but what you're feeling about the future is anxiety. So when you feel anxiety, you're thinking about the future. Snap yourself out of it by being in the here and now and saying, what is something I can do right now toward this thing that's giving me anxiety? If it's a fear of a conversation, then go ask the person if they are ready to have a conversation with you. Not right now? Awesome. When might we be able to have a conversation? I have something important I'd like to bring up. Cool. 1 p.m.? Excellent. I'll contact you then. What is something you can do right now that's the smallest next step that can help you alleviate some of this anxiety? We think about guilt, right? Guilt comes from breaking your own moral code. Shame comes from breaking society's moral code. So if you're feeling guilt or shame, this can, this can be some of those expectation thoughts. You expected it to go one way. Now you have disappointment. What could that disappointment evoke in you? Anxiety, guilt, and shame are three very strong ones you will potentially be feeling right now. So if you broke your own moral code, that's guilt. If you broke society's moral code, that's shame. If you need to go make amends to somebody for something that you did against them, then go do that and see if that alleviates the shame. If it doesn't, then there's still more people you need to apologize to or what you're really feeling is guilt. And then you need to just simply ask yourself, is the way I behaved then the way I would behave now? Go back to that moment in your mind and say, what was I trying to secure for myself? What human need was I trying to fulfill? How would I fulfill that human need differently now? Excellent. Take that knowledge about yourself, knowing you would not behave the way that you did back then anymore now. Because now is what matters. No DeLorean showing up with Einstein and Doc Brown and Marty McFly. You are in the here and now. Release what you did then, knowing you're a different person now. You are not who you used to be. You are who you are today. Start taking action today to prove to yourself and to demonstrate to others that you are growing. And fear. Fear, sometimes you just have to do things afraid. Fear can lead to procrastination. It can lead to perfectionism. You're going to feel very disappointed if you're letting fear hold you back from doing things and that's causing procrastination. Or you do things and then you tinker with the shit out of them because you think that they have to be perfect. Perfect doesn't exist. What's perfect in one person's eyes is atrocious in another person's eyes. The Gettysburg Address comes to mind. Back then, the reporters said that that was the stupidest speech, and it was watered down. It was a bunch of fluff. They mocked Abraham Lincoln for that. It is now considered one of the most powerful speeches in the history of the United States. So perfectionism doesn't exist. 
So release that. And then say what you mean and mean what you say, but don't say it mean. If if you're trying to release this um, expectation thoughts and this disappointment, if you say things mean, then there's a very good chance you're going to have to back yourself up at some point and you're going to feel disappointed in your behaviors. So when we think about being less confrontational, this is point two of this podcast, start it off by asking yourself, am I saying what I mean, but am I saying it mean? Again, when we talk about strong opinions loosely held, when you are always happen to be right, that's exhausting. It is exhausting to always have to be right. Got to get the last word in. You got you got to make sure that the other person feels subservient to you or dumber than you or whatever your human need is you're trying to make up for in that moment. Always having to be right is exhausting. That's addictive behavior. There can be times where you just don't say anything. There can be times where you scroll past a post that you don't like. Do you want to be right or do you want to connect? If you always have to be right, you're going to feel exhausted a lot and it's going to lead to confrontations. And that's the addict in you with the ego and the pride who thinks I've got to be right. I have to make sure that this person knows I know what I'm talking about. And you can be clear and direct when you're communicating with someone. Don't him and haul around because uh, what you want, honestly, when you start to him and haul around, you're stuttering on your words or you're using a bunch of words when one clear sentence would, would work. Right then, what that ends up doing is it will leave you feeling exhausted, and it'll also leave the other person confused and disconnected and disengaged in what you're saying. In multi, let me catch myself. I'm about ready to stutter on my words. Multiple times, I have noticed within myself when I start using more words than I actually need to to convey my message. It's because I don't want to come off as confrontational, but I'm going to say something that is going to potentially disappoint the other person because they had an expectation thought of what they wanted me to do. So they they were thinking I was going to you know pick them up and go to the playground, and in reality I've got to go work. So I'm going to use a whole bunch of words to try to explain how hey sorry I can't take you to the park. I've got to go work. Yeah, they're going to be disappointed because they had a picture in their mind and an expectation of going to the park and having fun, and now that has been removed from their future. So now there there is going to be disappointment, right? Am I going to feel guilty about it? Maybe so, maybe not. It's my choice based on I, me knowing I have to work, right? Will I feel shame about that for disappointing one of my niece or nephews or not being able to take them to the park? Again, breaking a moral code. I could have just not shown up at all, not told them anything, and then just acted like nothing happened. But that would definitely break my moral code. So I tell them the truth. Hey, Uncle Jesse's got to work. I'm sorry. I can't go do that thing with you. But when you hem and haul around at what you want, right, instead of just being direct, you're opening yourself up for confrontation because the other person will not have clearly heard what you're trying to express to them. Be okay expressing your feelings, your thoughts, your beliefs. And they might upset people. It honestly might upset someone. But be okay expressing that because you want them to feel okay expressing theirs to you. So if you create this space where they feel that they can say an opinion that goes against your opinion and you're not going to rip their head off, then even if at first they don't get on board with the non-confrontational kind of mentality, eventually they'll notice that you're just not going to be stirred into a fight. And you could even say, hey, back in the day, I used to want to start up a fight about this stuff. But you know what? I'm not going to do that anymore. You do you. 
You have your opinions. I have my opinions. At the end of the day, I want to connect with you. I love you. You matter to me way more than this argument about tomato, tomato. So be mindful of how you are expressing yourself because you will you want to be embraced for the way you express yourself just as much as the other person wants to feel that they can express themselves to you. Strong opinions, loosely held. Handcuffing yourself to ideas, taking things on that are being super emotional. And that, let's close this up by thinking about the ways that our emotions show themselves at us, right? We have this idea of controlling our emotions. In emotional intelligence, part of it is emotional management, being able to manage these different kinds of emotions in you. There are no weak people. There are strong anchors. So if you have an anchor in your past where someone disappointed you by showing up to a luncheon or your birthday, and now in the present, somebody's showing up late to something, and it may not even be the same person. But just anyone showing up late makes you feel rejected or alone, and that evokes anger, and then that, that anger is followed by fear that nobody loves you. Those are some very, very strong anchors. And so a lot of the times, the reasons why we got triggered into drinking was because of these anchors that we had established in our lives. So we think, well, I'm a weak person because I can't stay off the booze. In reality, you just have an extremely strong anchor. That starts a habit loop in your brain that in your brain says, oh, I'm, I'm lonely, I'm angry, I'm hungry, I'm tired, I'm fearful. In the past, when I have felt these emotions, I have turned to alcohol because alcohol makes me forget these emotions or it buries these emotions. So naturally, your brain is going to say, well, hey, I know when I feel this, I know what I'm supposed to be doing. I'm supposed to go get intoxicated. But you aren't that person anymore. Right? And whether you need to do some kind of pattern interrupt where you do some jumping jacks or you go for a quick walk or you meditate or you read out of a book, realize that the, the, the more powerful that emotion is inside of you, the more the opposite of it needs to be equal. And what do I mean by that? When someone's having an anxiety attack, I don't say, hey, calm down, calm down, calm down, because anxiety and calm are not felt the same way in the body. One is an arousal emotion. Anxiety is an arousal emotion. And calm is more of a relaxed emotion. So when somebody is having a panic attack and I'm trying to get them to calm, it's like I'm trying to build a bridge that is way too far away from the other island, from the other destination. If we've got relaxed on one side and calm on the other, that is not a, a one-way bridge. First, I'd want to get the person feeling anxiety to, to change that anxiety into excitement. Because anxiety is really your body telling you that something important that you want is about ready to come up. That could be getting out of court, or that could be going having a delicious meal. It can be a lot of things. But if you look at anxiety and the thing that you have anxiety around, it is generally, and I would would almost say like 99% of the time, you are going to notice that what you're having anxiety about is a successful conclusion of whatever this event is coming up. You want something good to come out of it. So the anxiety is actually your body and your mind saying to you, this is important. There is an outcome coming from this that matters to us. Focus. Right? But because anxiety is normally felt in the belly and the heart races and the pupils dilate and the blood you know, flows to the skin, like gets you into this fight, flight, or freeze mode, then it, we feel inside of our bodies the anxiety. But what if it was actually excitement? The excitement of a successful conclusion to this upcoming event. Excitement's generally felt in the heart. 
So I will have someone having an anxiety attack focus more on what it is they actually want and getting them to experience that as excitement, moving that that energy that they feel in their belly up to their heart. I do this through neuro-linguistic programming and some other methods and modalities that I've learned, but for the sake of brevity on this episode, when you feel anxiety, it's generally going to be somewhere below your um, your pectoral muscles, your breastplate. It's going to be down here in the belly somewhere. What you want you to do is get it up, up above your up above your breastplate, up above your pectorals, the, the nipple area, for the love of God. Just say it simple. Up, up, up there in that area. Get that anxiety up into the higher parts of your chest. When you do that, men and women, this works across the board, Right when you can move it from down low, where it's down in here, like in your intestinal area and in your stomach, and it's gurgling and you don't feel good. If you can get that anxiety up here, and right now I'm like tapping my pectoral muscle area. That's where you want it. Preferably get it over to your heart, because then you can take that anxiety and you can turn it into enthusiasm. It can cause your blood to pump around, and it will it will shift your energy. Picture it in your head, what this anxiety looks, feels, sounds like, and then move it up to your heart. I teach this all the time in my courses, and I'm talking about it super fast because we don't have a whole lot of time here, but the the brief explanation of it is close your eyes and picture this anxiety in your belly. What does it look like? What does it feel like? Are there any sounds associated to it? All right, what's excitement look, feel, and sound like to you? Awesome. Now you know what excitement looks and feels and sounds like, and you know what this anxiety looks, feels, and sounds like. Shift that anxiety to look more like excitement and move it up from your belly over above your heart, up here in your pectoral area. I'm telling you, this will absolutely work. It's going to take a little bit of practice. Some of you are really good at visualization, and you're going to notice. And once you get that anxiety to go to excitement, excitement, because it's an arousal emotion that does come down much quicker than anxiety, now your heart rate over time, think about it. You come off of a roller coaster and you're super excited, but like 10, 20 minutes later, you're like back to pretty much normal. Anxiety can last for days. So if you can get it from anxiety arousal emotion to excitement arousal emotion, as that excitement starts to level off, now you can move yourself to calm. So when we're talking about controlling your emotions, it's really about understanding that things are happening in your mind, thoughts are creating feelings and actions. So whenever you want to control your emotions, you really want to be thinking about what is the image, what is the thought I'm having in my head around this emotion? What triggered it? A feeling of disrespect? Uh, Okay, if you felt disrespected, something in your mind showed you a picture of a previous time in your life when you were disrespected or what a lifetime of feeling disrespected could look like. And the thoughts and the feelings work together to create your actions. Let's close it up on this. Do not take other people's emotions as your own, right? There's a difference between empaths and empathetic. I can be empathetic and feel like I can walk a mile in somebody else's shoes, I can, I can step into their model of their world, their point of view for a moment to say, okay, this must have been what they experienced. I know some empaths who literally will like take on the emotions and start crying with their clients, start crying with the person. I'm not a big fan of that because if someone came to me with an emotional issue, um, they don't necessarily need me to take on the emotions. They need me to help them process the emotions. Empaths are known for taking on other people's emotions, whereas empathetic people are able to step into the shoes and feel it and see it and hear it from their perspective without making those emotions their own. 
I don't want some, I don't want to start crying in front of somebody who's crying in front of me and now they they feel guilty they made me cry or they think they have to support me while they're crying. No, I want them to feel supported. I will have an opportunity to be supported at a different time. This is one of those things like where people start telling a horror story about their lives and other people are like, oh yeah, something like that happened to me. And they just hijack the conversation and start telling their version of something similar. But now the person doesn't feel heard. Right Now they're going to have their own emotional trials and tribulations happening within them. They're going to be disappointed because they expected you to listen. Right, That might evoke... Uh, anger or fear that you don't care about what they're saying. Now they're, now that's happening inside of them. <laughs> Anxiety about what's going to happen next time they want to talk to you and you interrupt them and start telling your story to them when they wanted you to hear their story. So now all this emotional stuff's going on in them and they're just sitting there like trying to maintain in front of you without getting upset or they just get upset. And you're like, why are you getting so upset? I was just trying to, you know, share about my life. And whether they're brave enough to say it or not, it's because they came to you wanting to share about their life and you just hijacked the conversation. So listen with an empathetic ear and be in control of yourself and your emotions. The space between the stimulus and the action. The space between the stimulus and the action. When you're stimulated and you have anxiety or fear or anger, whatever, hungry, angry, lonely, tired, whatever it might be that you're feeling, the distance between when you got stimulated and your action, that is where rational thought is allowed to come in, push away the amygdala's immediate need to feel right or to have control, and you're able to slow it down so that you don't just immediately go into yelling or anger or fear. Right, this is the reaction response. Reaction is 0. 0.0001 second from stimulus to action. Whereas response could be five seconds, 10 seconds, 20 seconds. You might walk out of the room or go walk around the block, go stand in the garage, whatever it is that you need to do to hold back yelling at someone else or getting mad at yourself for not living up to your own expectations. Being emotionally triggered is reacting. Being emotionally grounded is responding. And the space between the stimulus and the action, that is where all the purity of your soul can show itself. And I can assure you, as someone who spent 22 years in active addiction on a ton of stuff, back in the day, my space between the stimulus and the action was barely existent. I lacked impulse control to the nth degree. It's like the moment something showed up, man, I would just snap. You could just snap me in a heartbeat. But we want to increase our impulse control, our reaction time. And that reaction time is the, is, is the amount of space you give from the stimulus to the action. You want to be in control of your emotions? Increase your reaction time. Or it could be response time, really. Right? We want that response time to be elongated. If you're immediately snapping into anger, your reaction time is blah. But if you give yourself some space to then respond... Now your response time is going to now fill that space from stimulus to action. And I can assure you, people will see a massive change in you if you used to be the kind of person who just snapped. They will be like, wow, you are a lot more grounded. You seem really centered right now. Right? And then that's going to give you some more convincers that you're doing a great job. You're demonstrating to them that you're, that you're healing. You're convincing yourself that you're healing because somebody has said it. Or you just notice it. Don't look for external validation in your growth. Seek it internally. Create your own happiness. And when all of this is said and done, 
deciding right now that you are no longer the person who yells and screams and starts fights is going to be a powerful, powerful mechanism for moving you from addiction to sobriety and ultimately into recovery. It is going to be huge. There is a noticeable difference in people's success in their lives when they are emotionally intelligent and they can be grounded and they can allow their prefrontal cortex, that thing that's right behind your forehead, to be in charge more often than the emotional center, that amygdala, that midbrain is. That's your reptilian brain. That's that little two-year-old in you that has to be right, that has to push boundaries, that wants to push, 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 push. We're seeking to be an all-the-way-up life kind of person now. Moving ourselves into addiction recovery is going to be the managing of the emotions. Stop having these expectation thoughts and instead embrace the moment for whatever it is, for whatever you can create it to be in that moment. I'm telling you, this is amazing, powerful stuff. Seek to be less confrontational. Don't be like these people on the television yelling and screaming at each other. Just because they're doing it on TV does not mean that's how they really should be doing it. In fact, they're just trying to get ratings. In real life, you want to be grounded and talk to people with respect and honor them for being a part of your life. And especially if you have torched a bunch of bridges and you're looking to remodel them and rejuvenate these connections with people, you're going to want to be a different person than you were before. So when you catch yourself acting the way that you used to do in active addiction, now you can say, ah, that's addiction. That's the addiction, Jesse and me. What is sobriety, Jesse, wanting to do right now? What, What would recovery, Jesse, be doing right now? Be the sobriety and recovery versions of yourself, releasing the addiction version of yourself. And that, my friends, will lead you to an all-the-way-up life. All right. As always, it has been an honor and a privilege to have you here for the last 30 minutes or so. The power of positive energy, release and flow. Every day is the greatest day of our lives when we wake up sober. See you next week. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.